Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Riaz Megji, author of Every Conversation Counts. And if you want to build more meaningful relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friends, Travis Chappell and Eric Skorzynski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. My name is Eric Skrzynski. I am your host. And on today's show, I'm sitting down with someone who has made hosting his career. His name is Riaz Megji. He's a human connection expert with 17 years of broadcast television experience. And during his time as host on City TV's Breakfast Television, MTV Canada, TEDx Vancouver, CTV News, and the Toronto International Film Festival, he has interviewed thousands of experts about human connection and collaboration. Undertaking critical training that helped shape the tangible takeaways he shares to make in his new book, Every Conversation Counts. Riaz is spending a lot of time digging deep in the dangers of isolation, loneliness, and our social pandemic, and the way the coronavirus has really affected all of us. He tackles a uniquely modern question, why are we so connected and yet so alone, and how can we reconnect? I really know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of this episode. Remember, if you appreciate anything on the show, be sure to take a screenshot of this episode and tag Travis Chapel on Instagram with the handle at Travis Chapel. All right, guys, let's get into the show. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Riaz, thank you so much for joining me. Eric, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's so good to have you on here. And uh, before we get into kind of your career as it stands now, we like to take these conversations back to the very beginning. Talk to me about your kind of childhood. Like, what were you what were you thinking as a kid when you're thinking, like, when I grew up, I want to be fill in the blank. Like, what was kind of the, the picture you had laid out for yourself? Mm. Man, when I was a kid, I was a socially anxious introvert. So when I would think about what do I want to be when I grow up, all I could think is I just want to fit in somewhere. And I, I would say up until grade 10, I really struggled with that piece. And it wasn't until I saw my brother, who, whose name is Zane, he's about two and a half years older, uh, perform in an improv theater troupe at a local high school in Delta, British Columbia here in Canada. And to see the audience electrified by what they did on stage, that's when I started thinking, hmm, what if I kind of just reinvented, changed schools, got into an acting class and just broke through this anxiety. And by grade 11, I just threw myself into the lion's den, so to speak, to just learn the craft of just being more open, leading with the yes end and stop judging myself. And at that point, I'd say in high school, there was a good realization that hey, I, I wanted to explore what, what the idea of presenting and engaging with an audience might look like for a living. Right. So obviously you had that passion so very early on, like that was something that was like, okay, I want to be in front of people. I want to perform. I want to entertain. But you talk a lot about, like in your TED Talk, you talk about you know your parents' expectations for you, what they wanted for you, what what they kind of were pushing you toward. And you ended up going to pursue a degree in finance. Did you have it in your mind that like, okay, this will be fun on the side, but I've also just got to pursue this kind of traditional career path initially. Yeah, you know, I appreciate this question and appreciate the the reference to the TED Talk because culturally, (laughs) you grow up in a South Asian family, there are expectations by your parents of what you're going to end up doing. And yeah, that for the longest time led me to believe, hey, presenting was just a hobby or, or, you know, afterthought, but to actually have a solid career I needed to follow a traditional path and I was living my life for them. Mm. They were you know, entrepreneurs that came to Canada in the seventies from East Africa, a couple hundred bucks in their pocket. They hustled to create for us. And there were four of us, myself and my brother and the family. So I think for the longest time, I was kind of afraid to deviate from what their expectation was of me. And it wasn't until I finished that finance degree, I just got to a moment where I just thought, I can't live my life for somebody else. Even if that bank account is a fat bank account, it would be empty on an emotional level, on a personal level of the what if I had gone after that thing I wanted to do. Mm. How did you make that decision? Because we talk a lot about, there's there's plenty of people who, who they have that sunk cost fallacy, right? Like I poured so much money, poured so much time into this, especially like a finance degree. You're spending all this time researching, studying, you're seeing the, the financial investment and you're right at the point where you're saying like, okay, this is going to start paying me back at least financially. Like, how do you make the decision to pivot? And maybe even beyond that, like, how do you deal with the, maybe the the kind of shame that might come from, you know, family, friends saying like, why are you doing this? Why throw this away to pursue this other dream? It was a scary time. Like this was the age of 22 being at that crossroads mm-hmm. of degrees finished, uh, the investment's been made to get this formal education. <laughs> I'm just going to punt it and go after something in the media business. 
And it really came down to a belief someone had in me before I truly believed in it myself. And a conversation I had at the age of 22 with someone that saw some of my work on stage facilitating at a conference in Quebec City, he stopped me in my tracks and really challenged me to look at the potential of what could be possible in making the decision to go after it. Mm. And I find like even decisions now, I'm in my early 40s, it's so easy to get caught in the trap of, well, if I make this decision, what if it doesn't work? And then you outthink yourself before you even just try it. And to have that belief in, in his idea of just do this for a year, no. put a clear intention down for a year and see what you could create. Because you're 22, I see this potential, even if you don't see it, and then, and then watch what happens. And sure enough, once, once that decision was made, once that commitment was made in that conversation, it was amazing of what started to unfold because... It's like a public declaration of, hey, everyone, this is the direction I want to go. And when you're the underdog, it's the classic story. Everybody mm. wants the underdog to, to succeed and find the way. And uh, I found people supported me. People gave me leads. And then it was just paying my dues with internships. And then finally getting a, a, a first foot in the door with MTV Canada at the time. Right. And that by itself is a crazy story. I'm curious for somebody sitting there, maybe they're the person who's finishing up their finance degree or they're pursuing this, this path that someone else laid out for them. They're climbing someone else's mountain, you know, so to speak, you know, would you give any practical advice as far as like, what, what should you have laid out or should you have any kind of security net, you know, or safety net before you take that jump? Or would you encourage anyone if they're at a certain age, you know, or maybe at any point just to take that, that plunge and just try something else. If they, if they have any inkling or question about it. I think the idea I would encourage anyone listening to this is to ask themselves the question, no matter what you're doing, asking them, what do I love most Mm. about this entire process? And for me, asking myself that question and being challenged by somebody else was, okay, sure. I'm chasing a finance degree, but what I truly loved was the art of the presentation to engage an audience, to serve an audience, mm-hmm. and to uh, invite them to think, do, or feel something differently. And once you discover that thing that you love, that part, doubling down on that energy, then it becomes so much more exciting because celebrating even the small wins are, are just huge victories because you're doing it for your own pursuit of your own passion as opposed mm-hmm. to living it for somebody else. Yeah, you you mentioned passion, and that was kind of how you pitched yourself to the first producer you ever got in touch with. Like it was, it was, what's your credentials? How are you going to do this? And you, mm-hmm. you really, you had invested in this whole other career track. So your only thing that you could offer, bring to the table, was passion to start. Tell us a little bit about that first conversation and uh, how you kind of first got your foot in the door in the actual TV industry. Yeah, this was wild. And I remember this vividly. And and thanks for bringing me back to this moment, because when I was entering every contest I could think of to get my foot in the door to, to, to do any type of job, whether it was promo, whether it was internships, I just wanted to learn the craft. Somebody had said to me, they're like, hey, Riaz, you know, MTV Canada tapes a top 10 video countdown show at a penthouse in a studio in downtown Vancouver. And they said, you should go check that out. And I thought, you know what? That is a great idea. I had no idea that production was going on. And Eric, like I I got to the studio, sat in the audience and then watched the whole production unfold. And it it was like, I was in the right place. It felt magical Mm. of how it all unfolded. And the audience's energy was electric. 
when I watched the host connect with the camera and just connect through the barrel of the camera, I had goosebumps thinking, hey, what if, what if that could be me doing that role? Yeah. And then the, the business analytical mind started looking around thinking, okay, well, who's calling the shots here? Mm. And I was able to pinpoint the director that was counting the show in and, and, and amping the crowd out, amping the crowd up. And then I figured, I'm like, this is the person I need to talk to once this production is done. So I waited till the room cleared out, summoned up the courage and walked right up to this guy. And I said to him, excuse me. Hi, I'm Riaz. Nice to meet you. And obviously he's a busy director. He's got no time for some random like me just crashing into his world. And he just gave me the once over and said, yes. And I said, what would it take for a guy like me to host on a show like this? And he looked at me and he said, well, what kind of experience do you have? And I said, I don't have any. And he said, where'd you go to broadcast school? And I said, I didn't. And he said, well, what could you possibly have to offer me? And in that moment, it, that passion was just ignited. And I said, an unwavering passion and commitment to do this. Silence. And I thought to myself, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't screw up this moment. It was maybe only five seconds. It felt like an eternity. But in that moment, I kind of stood my ground. He looked at me and he said, why don't you come back Friday for a screen test? We'll see what you got. And then that blew my mind to think, okay, Oh my God, I got a screen test. I have no idea. I truly have no idea what I'm doing, but I have a conception of what I could bring, the energy and presence I could bring to this experience. And then went into that screen test. And, you know, they tested me because what ended up happening after was an unpaid internship, handing out flyers with high school kids at the corner of Robson and Burrard in downtown Vancouver, inviting people to come watch the production of the show. And two and a half months later, that producer knew his news reporter was leaving uh, to move down to Los Angeles. And they said to me, hey, you said you had an unwavering commitment. We liked your energy. We wanted to test your attitude. We have this opportunity. Uh, if you want it, it's yours. And that's truly where everything all began and uh, with the career in front of the camera. And that's, that's such an important thing to take away from your story is that so many people, I think, have that dream of that story, you know, like of going in pitching themselves. And in most people's dream, it's, they pitch themselves. He says, you're right. You're on camera tomorrow, you know? And like for your story, you were willing to put in the work, you know, handing out flyers with high school kids, getting people to come into the show. Like you were willing to do that, that kind of early job to show that you were committed to it. And I think that's one of the things we see so often when we talk to people working in the podcast realm, we're talking about putting together something for their business. Like the one thing that nobody wants to hear is like, sometimes the answer is just putting in the work and being consistent and showing up. And everybody wants the, okay, now I know who to talk to, give me the keys to the kingdom. But it's really cool that your story is just you doing these things that, one, just making the introduction, so many people don't get to that point. But then two, showing up and doing these kind of odd jobs that they're giving you just in the meantime. Tell me a little bit about the first day actually pursuing this career? Like you're, you're getting in front of a camera for the first time. What are you feeling? Do you feel like you're supposed to be there? Do you feel timid or scared? What was kind of the, the mood and the atmosphere? Terrified, terrified. And when I think back to it, it's because, you know, when you put something out there and you have a drive to just create and you do, then come expectations. It's like, hey, getting to the top is one thing, but then staying there is another and the interesting thing that was happening over those two months was I, when I was handing out flyers, I did question, I'm like, am I making the right decision? And I was very fortunate to have parents that I could tell they were concerned, but they said, if this is what makes you happy, we're going to support this for now. 
I know, I know my dad was always like, when are you going to get your MBA? But they were in my corner and that helped. But when it came down to the cameras rolling, the audience is here, the pressure is on. The one thing I realized early on in my career was, uh, and this was a great mistake, was it's not about me. And I was thinking about how am I coming across? Am I saying the right thing? When the most important thing to do is to think about that one person on the other side of this camera and how to light them up, how to engage them, how to bring them an enjoyable experience. So I got in my head a lot. And even I would say six to eight weeks into that time on camera, I had a producer pull me aside and say, you don't look like that confident guy that came to us in the beginning. What happened? And it was that overthinking, that analytical mind of, am I doing this right? Am I in the right place? Imposter syndrome. So many thoughts went through my head where what ended up happening four months later was I was replaced. And the person that came in to replace me uh, is a friend to this day because what ended up happening, and this was an excellent lesson in just humility, that he always said to me, hey, when I, I was replacing you, you could have been a jerk to me. But for me, that imposter syndrome is like, I can't even believe I'm here right now. But it taught me a great lesson of what it takes. There's going to be highs, there's going to be lows. And even though I parted ways with MTV Canada in 2002, four months into the gig, a couple of years later, that same host that replaced me needed a co-host. Mm -hmm. And he made the call to bring me back in. And then we created a, 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 just an, an enjoyable, fun dynamic on a brand new show on the same channel. So it really gave me a valuable lesson of remembering to just point that focus forward on what the audience needs and just remembering you never know when you're going to cross paths with someone again, right. just to embrace it and not take it personally. And that's that's easier said than done, especially uh, with this format in the public eye. Right, right. Well, it's so often I think the default is to burn the bridges, you know, like fine, I'm out and and burn those relationships, but it does. They circle back so often in unexpected ways. And um, I, I am curious for, just before we get into the kind of the networking side, which you kind of hint, hinted at here in a big way, what advice would you give to people who are in the space? We've got a lot of podcast hosts that listen. We've got a lot of people that listen who do, you know, different forms of interviews. They're having at least conversations. How do you prioritize the person in front of you? How do you turn the conversation and really make it count when you're talking to somebody who, whether it's an interview, whether it's something for a, just a relationship building moment, what are some tips you could give to people to have these conversations in a better, more meaningful way? Mm. One of the things that I really discovered in, in, in the two decades of interviewing people for a living on television was uh, the mistake I was making was coming up with what I believe to be all of the greatest questions to ignite the person in front of me. Yet, the opportunity to unlock something that's unique, personal, and something you can't Google was always being missed. So step one is inviting the interviewer or networker to over-prepare to improvise. And to do that work, I mean, Eric, you've demonstrated that, that you know, you listen to the TED Talk, you've seen you know, a bit of my background and, and you've brought me into moments. That preparation will always give us confidence that we need going into the conversation. But one of the questions I would always ask in the green room before we went out on live television was to, you know, greet the person, but then simply ask this question and then get out of the way. And it was, what's on your mind? And the first response I would get from guests would allow me to prioritize what their priorities are. 
and where their emotion lies and what's occupying their mental space and think, okay, I had all of these ideas that I had researched, but I'm going to park all that because you just gave me something I wasn't even thinking about. So first things first is how to over-prepare to improvise because the preparation will give us confidence, but leaning in, improvising, and just listening, that's, that's the part that's going to give us real connection. The second part is how can we ask for stories, not just answers? And you've done this as well. Take me into that moment, that conversation you had with that director and producer at MTV, what was said, what happened, what were you thinking? Because what that's going to do is ignite the conversation where it's less about information and it's more about emotion. Mm. And I find that is where the deepening of connection happens because emotion is what connects us. It polarizes us, but above all, it is what motivates us to act. And the the greatest way to, to connect to emotion is to tell someone or ask someone about a story because our brains are wired in a way that we're absorbing the stories as if we're living through them. Right. And in any interview, my guess is if, if someone's listening to this right now, they're going to remember the com- the story behind the conversation of that moment of just going for it with the director. And the other thing is finding a way to practice simplicity and just getting to the point with questions. Sometimes we as interviewers, and I, I've been guilty of this uh, early on in my career, of wanting to have the uh, intention of not just fitting in, but standing out and doing this great job. And then what I would end up doing is coming up with complicated setups that consisted of multiple questions where the person in front of me is overwhelmed thinking, okay, I don't even want to answer this because you just asked me 10 questions in one thing, but simply getting to the point with the first question of, you know, what motivated this moment? How did that feel when you did this? Mm -hmm. And then getting out of the way and listening to them and waiting for the moment to dive deeper with follow-up questions. Cause the first question is always the appetizer for the main course that comes through some really engaged follow-up. Right. Yeah. It's uh, Travis Chapp always talks about, you know, it's it, people don't remember what you say, but they always remember how you make them feel. And it yeah. is so often people come in and they basically play a game of 20 questions. You know, I've got these things. I'm going to drag the interviewee through these questions And it is like taking the time to just let it breathe. And what are they passionate about? Like, I love when when I asked you, you know, how do you make a conversation count? Like, I love watching your eyes light up and go like, I remember, and you're probably going through all these interviews in your mind of, I remember sitting out with this person and asking this, or this conversation went this way. And those moments so often get lost because we want to push people through our agenda versus talking about what's important to them. And uh, I think that's a really, really amazing answer. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a 
a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. For sure. So just kind of moving into the networking piece, you've you've talked a little bit about connections and and everything in your career has been relationships. Like I think that's clear listening to you talk about it through interviews, listening to your your TED talk. It's it comes down to people that influence you, open a door for you, introduce you to the right person. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? And I feel like I can guess your answer based on the stories you've just shared. <laughs> I think it's a strong combination of both. I mean, if you're going to build a relationship, there has to be a degree of competency and trust. If someone's mm-hmm. going to say, all right, I'm going to team up with Eric because Eric's an expert in his craft of how he engages not only with the guests, but with the audience. And there has to be a level of trust there. But what I've also learned in this industry is you could be the most talented interviewer, uh, podcaster, host on camera, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to, well, who do you know so you can have that talent seen, heard, or felt by the decision maker? And in the media business, when they're choosing talent, a lot of the decisions are just arbitrary. That they're, they're truly out of your control. You could put the best application forward, but it'll come down to something that, okay, do I trust this person? Why? Who do they know? Who gives that reference? I think the value and investment in your relationships will drive your success. And, you know, I was even, I was doing an event this week with, uh, it, it was a virtual gala where several sales leaders were being recognized and every single one of them talked about their success was because of the team around them. And we had this debrief afterwards of how success is a team sport and that team sport is just driven by the quality of your relationships. So I think it it's a combination of both, but who you know is definitely going to take you further. And yeah, the relationships are definitely important. And I'm curious, especially speaking to the entertainment world, there's a lot of critics, you know, both well-intentioned and people that maybe just like to pick at different things. And I'm sure you heard plenty of feedback. Like, for example, you got great constructive criticism, you know, the the confidence that we saw there disappeared, you know, when you got on camera in those initial stages. How do you parse out who to take their advice seriously, take the criticism to heart? And what relationships do you keep at a kind of arm's length and say, okay, I can't let their influence affect what I'm doing in this moment? How do you choose who to listen to in those moments? Yeah, that, that, that's a valuable question to ask. And I'll really look at it. If it's constructive on the craft, I'll look at uh, the expertise that someone might have uh, mm. that's offering up that criticism. Because if it's an armchair critic that's firing from their hip with you know, no real experience, but just personal perspective or preference. Sometimes in that scenario, 
they might offer insight into a blind spot where it's valuable. I mean, I think I operate under the philosophy of discover before I dismiss, no matter who the person is. But if I'm going to take it to heart, there's got to be a level of trust that I have in their expertise. And I find, Eric, like we're in a culture where everyone is so quick to jump in, interrupt, give unsolicited advice. And you really miss the moment of asking somebody first, like, hey, how do you think that went? And allowing somebody to self-diagnose it first. And once they do that, if they offer me the invitation to provide feedback, that's where I, I find it's very constructive. Because sometimes people with the unsolicited feedback may have a great intention, but someone wasn't ready for it or they weren't asking for it. And then it just falls on, on deaf ears. So for me, uh, leading with discovery is important, but really uh, having a respect and trust in someone's expertise, if I'm going to double down on really improving some aspect of the craft. I have to know that there's competence on their part and experience on their part that could help me see things in a different way. Yeah, that's so valuable and important to remember. And it, it almost takes us back to the story with your parents, right? Like they they had no knowledge of the entertainment industry and they had what was the success path laid out for you. And for you, it was, it was even though you love, respect, admire, and probably have pulled so many invaluable lessons from them, when it came to pushing into the entertainment industry, you had to find voices that had gone there and done that. You had to find people that had gone the path that you wanted to go. And that's a really that's a really good answer is like looking at the expertise, seeing what they do. And it's hard to do that, especially when you're first starting out, like all of those voices seem so, so loud. I know that's for me, like it was, it was constantly like hearing people give an opinion here, opinion there. And you have to learn how to kind of filter out those voices and find the ones that are really going to push you in the right direction. So I, I really appreciate that answer. As far as networking goes, um, obviously you've had people that have spoken into this. How important have specific mentorships or maybe even masterminds been to you as you've kind of pushed in this direction and, and have grown and developed your craft? Yeah, community and masterminds have been invaluable. You know, it was it was an interview I remember doing with with Shaggy, and this was in 2019. And he, I was talking about his craft of songwriting because he's an artist that kind of finds and discovers up and coming talent and puts them on his track, and he collaborates, and then it's a win win situation. But he also said in his process, and uh, I think this is a common sentiment that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And I love that humility as an artist, just to say, okay, let's let's put ourselves in a space where we're consistently growing. And you know, I, I've put myself out there, and I think this is the beauty of online education right now, where you can tap into these virtual spaces and find expertise, not only from the coach that's there, but much to the point we were just discussing, Erica, of who do you listen to? Finding a community of like-minded leaders, entrepreneurs, networkers that have had unique experience where you could put. You know, I've, I've done this for uh, one coaching, Brendan Burchard. I love his work. Uh, there's a great YouTube coach in Vancouver. Uh, her name is Sunny Leonard Doozy. The community she's built uh, has really taught me how to use YouTube in a way that can serve your audience and in you, your business. Meanwhile, I thought YouTube was a hobby business uh, and hearing insights from everybody of the pain points they're experiencing. There's no holding back. They're celebrating their successes if they've made seven figures. And it's not, it's not bragging. It's inspiring to say, here are the results you, you could create. And I used to be someone that was really reluctant to share that because I didn't want to come off as, oh, you're just bragging, but it's, it's showing people what's possible. 
On the flip side, when there's people saying in, in these types of online communities, oh man, I just butchered this sales call. Here's what happened. And they have the courage and vulnerability to share it. Everybody dissects it and says, oh, I've had some, you know, a similar pain point. You know, I tripped and failed here too. But that community lifts you up. And I'm a big fan at, with the online networking right now of joining a community that has a similar intention and interest to grow and then being an active participant that champions others, but also shares those failures so everybody can prop each other up. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. And that's that's really, really valuable. And it's it's I think it's inspiring and I guess eye-opening to see someone like yourself who's been, I mean, you've been on the network side. You've been at where most people would say like, a lot of YouTubers would say, I'd love to get to that point and love to get in front of a, you know, in a real professional setting, the way that we tend to segment things in our mind. And it's really cool that even now with all that success, all of that progress made in your career, you can still look and say, what can I learn about YouTube from a YouTuber? Or what can I learn about this realm? Because it's a, it's a different thing. And to be able to still see that is really, I think that's really incredible. It speaks volumes about kind of your personality and your character uh, when it comes to these, these kind of topics. I just want to build on this point because I think it serves the intention of even, you know, the conversations you have on this podcast about building network. And this was advice a producer gave to me at MTV early on when I was trying to script interviews and, and create memorable moments and just find out what connection is really all about. And he said, if you do one thing in your career, if you do this one thing, you'll be successful. And it was to maintain a beginner's mindset. Hmm. And he, he really championed the idea that in the beginner's mind, there are infinite possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are only a few. And you will limit yourself if you think you've got to a point of success and there's nothing else to learn, which is why at this point in the YouTube game of learning so much, being someone that worked for the television network, YouTube gives you the opportunity to become the network to become a leader with service. Because the, the funny thing about YouTube is it's not about you on camera. It's about you, the audience. And half the people searching for a specific content, they don't care about the presenter. They care about the solution they're going to get. Mm. But the community that's built with gratitude to say, hey, Eric, man, thanks. Th thanks for that idea you gave me on this video or this podcast, totally going to help me. And then it's on us to engage with them to say, Great. Now, how did that thing go that you said you were going to do? And then you have a healthy back and forth where somebody knows on the other side, Riaz and Eric, they care. Mm. Because in building any network, the thing that I've learned, especially interviewing people for a living, is that the three most important questions that we all ask ourselves the first time we meet somebody are, do you care about me? Are you listening to me? And can I trust you? And if we can navigate those questions with pure intention and look out for somebody, some beautiful relationships will be built. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's obviously what you've covered in your book and you've, you've written an entire book about building these relationships, having these conversations that matter. And uh, if you're listening to this, definitely pick up a copy of Every Conversation Counts. Um, you're kind of sharing all of the practical takeaways you've had from your industry experience, from building relationships, even to this day. And um, I, I guess before we move into our final round, if you if you could talk about the book and just say, you know, hey, if there's if there's one takeaway, obviously every author hopes that there's not just one takeaway that comes from a book, <laughs> but if you could find one thing and say, this is the message I want everybody who grabs a copy of my book to walk away with, what would that concept or idea be? 
Yeah, thanks for the invitation to share on that. And, and, and it really comes down for me in our everyday communication. If we broke out of autopilot mode and got intentional with our listening, with our curiosity, and with our empathy, how could our relationships be different? And how we approach each other, this culture of convenience we live in works against the notion of meaningful human connection because everything's moving so fast, especially in the virtual world. But I invite uh, somebody listening to this that might be intrigued by the book uh, to practice specificity in your life. Remember one thing they told you and bring that back. Ask them one specific question about a moment in their life that's going to light them up and they can share a story. And if you think about even you want to show appreciation to somebody, instead of just saying, hey, great job, how can you be more intentional with your praise to make it specific, to make it personal, to make it urgent, to show here's what really made this special, Eric. The space you created not only inspired me, but here's what I did with it. And here's why your podcast on networking is so powerful. It's so much more meaningful to the other person. So when we come down to communication, how do we practice specificity with listening, empathy, curiosity, and even appreciating one another on a daily basis? That's a fantastic, fantastic answer. And I, I definitely hope that people will replay that and think about that. And it is, it's such an easy thing. Like I mentioned before, the 20 questions, it's easy to get into the the ho-hum kind of rhythm and just say, hey, what's up? What's up? Instead of being specific and, and really focusing in on making a conversation really count, like making, what can we walk away from this having talked about outside of just data? Like what's the emotional connection we can make that can be really, really valuable um, I know we're getting down to the end of our time here. I want to move us into our random round. It's just quick, uh, random questions with quick, uh, quick answers. First off, what profession other than your own do you think it would be fun to attempt? Professional dog walker. Okay. Now, my wife, <laughs> my wife, she made me into a dog lover. I didn't grow up with kids. She did. And we've adopted uh, some rescue animals over the years. Mm. And, you know, when you look at a stressful lifestyle, uh, sometimes our schedules prohibit us being with dogs all the time. And when I, we hired a professional dog walker, I remember saying, you have the greatest gig in the world because you talk about connection, the way dogs approach you when you come home Mm. from work, it's just love. And to see that connection, I always said to, to, to my wife, Lori, I'm like, if I didn't do this and I just got away from the stress, I've become a professional dog walker for sure. That's awesome. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Brene Brown. Hmm. And here's why. In 2012, I attended something called the World Domination Summit in Portland, Oregon. And at the time, I was at a point in my life, Eric, where when I was dating people, I was a very guarded person. And I didn't want to open up. I was... I was afraid of vulnerability because I thought it was going to backfire. And, you know, it's funny when you go through life and you see something and you, you think, I was supposed to be here in this moment and connect with this message. And in 2012, this was before Brene was a household name. And I had no idea who she was. And she was the opening speaker for this, this World Domination Summit. And she talked about vulnerability, where she said, if you lose your capacity Uh, for vulnerability, your joy will be foreboding. And I I don't know if that's the exact quote, but that was the sentiment of the message where I'm like, that's exactly what I'm doing in my life. I'm fearing vulnerability and I'm thinking that's going to, that that's going to fail. I'm going to miss out on this. It's going to backfire. 
And as soon as she said that, it just unlocked a different way of looking at life. And she brought such an authentic realness to the stage. I loved it. And I did a deep dive on her work. It really helped me open up. And now when I look at what she's doing, you know, with her message of the power of shame, of just sharing what's really gone on in your life and, and being vulnerable, I think it's outstanding. And to have one day an opportunity to sit beside her, one, to thank her, and two, to explore human connection and where we're going. Oh, man, I would love it. I try and squeeze those 60 minutes out and try to make them 90 and just, just wow <laughs> her with curiosity. But Brene would be the person. That's awesome. Uh, how do you like to learn best? Is it books, blogs, podcasts, videos? What's your what's your favorite format to learn? Writing. And I find I learn because writing is like living life twice. And the thing I learned in the writing process for the book was, <laughs> hey, I was still an overthinker. And I would get to the point where I'd hit these writing blocks and my editor literally, literally stopped me in my tracks and said, hey, you cannot edit a blank page. Just put the thought down and then we'll go to work on it and massage it and make it valuable for your reader. And I thought in that moment, yes, let, let's just have a free form writing session every day and just put these ideas down on paper because I found uh, the experiences I was going through unconsciously, there were lessons, but it wasn't until I was writing the ideas down that was when learning actually happened. And I thought, here are some concrete ideas now that uh, are lessons, but lessons that I believe will be a service to other people. What's your morning routine look like? Do you incorporate writing in the morning routine? My morning routine now is a mixture of meditation, yoga, and, and just like fitness training. And I switched the pace on this morning to just kind of shut my mind off and turn my, my, my body awareness on. And when I say I switch it for years, for over a decade, I hosted a, a live morning television show in Vancouver called Breakfast Television Vancouver. So the routine was wake up, floor the gas pedal, check out the top stories of the day. Boom, adrenaline's flowing. You're on. By the end, I'm like, okay, I, I, I need a nap now. <laughs> no. And I wanted to switch that up. So my mornings kind of start, actually, I would say the night before. The night before, I'm setting all the goals of what I want to accomplish that next day. But the morning is a space of just clarity, uh, relaxation if we're doing yoga or meditation, or activating my body with stretching, strength training, uh, just to, to get myself in the right energy to, to take on what's ahead. What's your pump-up song? Like, what gets you in the right headspace to kind of conquer the day? I'm a 90s hip-hop R&B guy, so I'll throw in Montel Jordan. This is how we do it. That one always gets me in a good mood. That's awesome. Uh, what's something you're not very good at? <laughs> sports. I suck at sports. I love watching them. Yeah. And it's almost like a wound I got in grade school where a teacher said to me, or actually wrote on my report card, Rias has a great enthusiasm to engage others, needs to work on his hand-eye coordination. Oh man. I don't know if that, that's just ingrained in my mindset, but any type of sport, no coach would put me in. They'd say, Hey, you're good with numbers. You could be the manager or you could be the mascot, never the athlete. So sports to this day, I still suck at, but super fan. Yes. That would be me. Gotcha. Gotcha. What is one place online where people can find you the most, uh, any social media, anything, what's the, what's the number one place you'd like people to connect with you? Thanks for this question. Uh, Riazmegji.com. So R-I-A-Z-M-E-G-H-J-I.com. It's a tricky name to spell. There's not really 
any other Rias Megji out there. So even if you don't spell it right, Google will find it for you. Right. Uh, it's got every everything uh, you need on there. And uh, a lot of just ideas on human connection, on presenting, uh, but just, just the pure idea of building relationships online. Well, I'm really glad we got to sit down and talk a little bit. And I really appreciate you sharing your story. I hope that everybody will go over to riazmegg.com and uh, connect with you there. And I totally connect with you on having a crazy name to spell. But uh, put in some assortment of letters. You'll find one of the two of us uh, after this. But thank you so much, Riaz, for jumping on this interview with me. I really appreciate it. The struggle is real with our names, man. Good on you for not changing it. We'll fight this battle together. Thank you, Eric. Awesome. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.